You're listening to Sermon Audio from First Baptist Church of Van Walsteen. For more information about First Baptist Church and our services, please visit www.fbcva.com. I love to worship with you. Sounded great this morning. You look good this morning. Let's take our Bibles and turn to Psalm 95. Psalm 95. While you're turning there, I wanted to share something that a pastor friend of mine, uh, actually local, uh, he is a pastor in Gunner, uh, posted this this morning. I thought it was so appropriate for uh, this morning's uh, message. It says, Sunday, the best day of the week. I sincerely hope if you attend a worship service today that you slash your kids get something out of it. But as you prepare your heart and mind for worship, maybe a better aim than what I can get would be Jesus is worthy. He's worthy of us gathering in his name. He's worthy of us singing to him. He's worthy of our time. Jesus is worthy of all of it and so much more. What a privilege it is to express his worth with others. We're in a sermon series called Rhythms, and we're looking at God's desire to use the normal flow of our everyday lives for his glory and the advancement of his kingdom. We have looked so far at eating, hospitality, we've looked at Sabbath rest, we have looked at work, and today we're going to look at the rhythm of worship. I want to tell you from the uh, outset of this morning's message, this is really not a message so much about church attendance. Uh, While that is critically important, us gathering as we have here this morning, uh, that's really not what this message is about so much. Um, Things in life sometimes knock us off rhythm. We don't worship or maybe we don't work our work rhythms, our rest rhythms, uh, maybe the way that we manage our relationships even as we should. It, it gets worrisome. It gets, it gets tiring. And as we've learned over the past couple of weeks even in the book of Genesis, rest and work and worship, these things were all designed by God as part of human flourishing so that we can be who God wants us to be. We sometimes focus so much on doing what God wants us to do, and certainly that's important. But what must precede doing what God wants us to do is being who God wants us to be. And so each of these rhythms that we're looking at, some of them uh, obviously lean more in the direction of, of living out your faith with your hands and your feet in a very practical way, like eating and serving others through hospitality and so forth. Others of them focus a little more on, on us being who God wants us to be, being in a right relationship uh, with him. And so all of these things that God has designed for human flourishing and healthy living uh, before sin entered the world. And then after sin entered the world, they were all affected by the fall. But believers in Jesus know that he uh, restores our relationship to God and he is progressively transforming us into a people who are pursuing, actively pursuing God with all of these rhythms. 
We're worshipers who are striving to love God supremely and desiring to glorify God in in the simple things like our eating and our rest and our work. And we want to love others as God would have us to. I don't want to continue to dwell on all that has happened over the past couple of years. I, we we kind of uh, hit a milestone, I guess you might say, uh, this week. Uh, I was reminded uh, just in looking at um, some memories uh, of a video that I posted back in March of 2020. Remember that? We were scrambling. We were like, everybody was. We were like, what, what, what does this pandemic thing mean? What are, we, what are we doing? How do we do church in the midst of a global pandemic? And and as we gained more information and we began to see uh, some of the responses around the world, literally, we were forced to make some critical decisions and to invest in some new equipment that allowed us to live stream and to do church remotely for a short season. And then we had to make the decision as, as a corporate body of believers, what are we going to do about masks and not masks and all of those sorts of things? And how are we going to respond to this? And much of what we experienced over the past couple of years, in many ways disrupted our rhythms, didn't it? I mean, we would call it the great disruption. (laughs) Some of you are now working from home, but you didn't work from home before COVID. And what companies are realizing is through COVID, hey, more of our people can actually work from home and they can actually be pretty productive. But that disrupted your rhythms. Now it's not getting up and getting dressed every morning and going to work. Now it's, you know, am I Zoom ready or what? I don't know what you do. You know, it it, it just disrupted our rhythms. And most people would agree that in many ways the pandemic knocked the world off rhythm. The economy, healthcare, education, the jobs market, even our worship, church life itself. And let me just say a word real quickly to those who are joining us online this morning. And some of you, uh, you join us every single week online. And we are so glad that we have the technology that allows us to do this. And I recognize that there are a lot of people, some of you even watching this morning, you need to be right where you are. You need to be there for health reasons, health concerns, a a number of different things. But I happen to know that there are some people who have found it incredibly comfortable, comfortable to just worship from their couch or from their back patio when they really need to be here. This is not Pastor Mike inviting you on a guilt trip. But I just firmly believe that God intends for us to be together. That's not always possible. I recognize. I have family members who are sick at home this morning. And they're not here for good reason, okay? God's given us good sense to know when when that's possible and when it's not and all those sorts of things. But but, but I I just know that that church leaders are still struggling in many ways and people are struggling to reestablish healthy rhythms of worship. And again, I'm not suggesting, I want to be crystal clear about this, that worship can or should only happen here on Sunday morning at 8.30 or at 11 o'clock. And while this is not primarily a message on church attendance and the corporate gathering, I think we can clearly see from God's word that the corporate gathering of God's people is vital to maintaining healthy rhythms of worship. I believe that God intends for all of his people, every single one of his people, to have a church home. A church family where they are firmly planted and where they have put down roots and where they are living life with other believers. In community. That is our ecclesiology here. We are not just trying to build a mega church. I would never tell. Our church is not for everyone. I had a phone call with a guy a few weeks ago. And he had a very specific list of things that he was looking for in a church. And I finally said, 
I'm just going to be honest with you. We are probably not the church that you're looking for. I mean, you think that's a crazy thing for a pastor to say, right? But I mean, this list was pretty specific. It was obvious that what was driving that list was, was some sort of an agenda, you might say. And so I was like, we're probably not the church you're looking for. But I believe that God intends for all of his people to be actively involved in the life of a local church. Now, again, having said that, I hope and pray that this is not the only time and the only space where you worship. Are you a Monday worshiper? I sure hope so. How about Thursday night? Can you worship on Thursday night? Sure. So I want us to look at, at, at a, take a broader look at worship itself in the life of the believer and the rhythms of worship itself. You know, we sometimes say things, and I know what we mean when we say this. We say, well, I'm going to church. I, I get that. I use that same terminology. I use that same vernacular. But I hope and pray that when we come to church, we don't just come to do worship. I hope that we bring our worship with us. That we bring our worship with us. And we come with an eager anticipation of what God is going to do in our lives. That what, what God is going to say to us through His Word and by His Holy Spirit. It's so easy in today's world to just come and sit and hear a sermon and leave and check that box off and kind of feel like you've done your church thing. That's not the way God intends for his people to worship. And, and then we take elements of worship, expressions of worship, like music, which is so vitally important in Scripture and is such a critical part of worship, and, and we, we think that that alone is worship. And so we will sometimes erroneously say things like, well, you know, the worship part of the service as if that's the only part of the service that is actually worship. Well, that's not true either. And so we're going to look at Psalm chapter 95 today. I want us to look at uh, this psalm in its entirety, 95 verses 1 through 11. So I hope that you'll follow along there as I read. And if you don't have a personal copy of God's Word with you, it'll be up on the screen for you. It says, Oh, come, let us sing to the Lord. Let us make a joyful noise to the rock of our salvation. Let us come into his presence with thanksgiving. Bring it with you. Let us make a joyful noise to him with songs of praise. For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. In his hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Oh, come. Let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker, for he is our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. As at Meribah and on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test and put me to the proof, though they had seen my work. For 40 years, I loathed that generation and said, they are a people who go astray. Notice this, in their heart. They have not known my ways. Therefore, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. There's a fundamental truth that is so important to us understanding worship itself. We are created to worship. We are created to worship. And this psalm on worship helps us see three essentials of worship. And, and, and we would say even the rhythm of worship. Um, 
I have, as, as I've grown older and hopefully more mature, I have grown to uh, be more of a, uh, uh, an art, I appreciate art much more. Um, and, and I know that art points to an artist. If you go to a gallery and you see uh, an art display, or an, then, then you're thinking, man, who, who did this? This didn't just happen on its own. This, this painting didn't just come about, or this sculpture didn't just form itself. It, it points to the creative giftings and the talents of the artist or the sculpture. Uh, the sculptor. We are created to worship, to give glory to our creator, to our creator. So here's big truth today that I want you to, I want you to grab hold of, and hopefully you'll leave with this for sure. We are made for worship, and true worship requires rightly responding to God's revelation and resting in Christ. True worship requires rightly responding, so worship is a response, responding to God's revelation and resting in Christ. There are the three keys to the rhythm of worship, revelation, response, and rest. Worship is fundamentally about those things. So let's consider first revelation. Worship is a response to value or worth. It's a response to value or worth. The first song that we sang during the worship set, we sang the word worthy, worthy, worthy multiple times, right? What were we doing? We were collectively lifting our voices and saying, God, you alone are worthy of our worship. You are worthy of our praise. In fact, worship, if you really break the word down, it is worth shift. That's what it really is. It's saying God is worthy of our worship. Christian worship is responding appropriately to God's supreme value and worth with our hearts and with our lives, with all that we are. That's why it is not something that should just be marginalized to a particular day of the week or a particular time of the day, 11 o'clock on Sunday morning. So you, you can't have a proper response without revelation, without revelation. One of the things that is incredibly challenging and, and sometimes a little frustrating for a pastor is for someone to come to you well after the fact, uh, they've maybe gone through a crisis or something like that, and they're a little frustrated because you didn't respond in the way that they expected you to respond. Many times you're left to say, well, I, I didn't know. I didn't know. You, you can't respond to something that you didn't know about, right? And, and nowadays we have so many different ways to communicate with one another. You can send an email. You can send a text. You can send a message through Messenger or this platform or that platform. And, and once, it's, once in a while, you just miss one of those, right? I mean, an email will, will somehow end up in my spam folder. Someone will say, well, did you get that message? No, I don't, I don't think I did. I don't recall that. Certainly I can overlook things. And sure enough, go and look, and it's sitting there in my spam folder. It's frustrating for the person who wants you to get that information. Well, I couldn't respond to it because I hadn't yet seen it. And so worship is a response to revelation, what God has revealed to us in a variety of ways. So Psalm 95 here reveals to us that God is both powerful and personal. He's powerful and he's personal. I'm going to tell you, this truth alone is what sets biblical Christianity apart from most of the world's religions. 
They, they may acknowledge that their God is powerful, but few of them will acknowledge that their God desires to have a personal relationship with us, with his people. They may see their God as some distant deity, but, but is largely aloof to the everyday affairs of man. But biblical Christianity says that our God is powerful and personal. Notice what it says in verse 3 here of the text. It says, For the Lord is a great God and a great king above all gods. Little g gods. Verse number 7 says, For he is, check this out, our God. And we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Do you see? In those two verses alone, you see very clearly that God is both powerful, all-powerful, and he's personal. Both show the futility of idols and any kind of idolatry. They are neither powerful nor are they personal. The false gods are not our gods. The Israelites, this was written to encourage them in worship. They they had been chosen by God to be God's people, to worship God. He was their God, they his people. And yet what kind of pattern do you see of them as you study the Old Testament? In my personal Bible study, I've just made it through the, uh, the Torah, through the first five books of the Old Testament. I'm now up into Judges, and you just see this crazy, ridiculous cycle. God shows himself faithful. God shows himself powerful. God shows that he wants to have relationship with his people. And what do they do? Oh, Baal. Oh, they, they, they just have these wandering hearts toward all these, this polytheistic culture in which they found themselves, always going after something else. What do we learn about God? He's relational. Our supreme, great God, all-powerful God can be known above all gods. That is an admission of our sin. We have created gods, idols that offer false hopes and promise false salvation. Those false gods cannot compare. They promise what only God delivers. And we see this all the time. And while you may say, well, I've never fashioned an idol. I've never carved an image. That's a little foreign to our culture for the most part. But if we're completely honest and we really take a look at our lives, we are, as as the old song says, Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. One writer put it this way. Our hearts really are little idol factories. Because we're made to worship, we are prone to worship those things that we should not worship. Notice what it says in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. Just listen carefully. It says, For although they knew God... They did not honor him as God or give thanks to him and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. It's only through the gospel that we are restored to a right relationship with God and begin to forsake idols and instead worship God as we should. And if we're completely honest, we would have to say that many times our idols are the things that make us feel worthy. Because in our hearts, we are really more interested in subscribing worth to ourselves than we are to God. And so people then will worship their careers because their career provides some form of success and security. People worship relationships and possessions and position and power and so many things. So when the idol is taken away, they're crushed. 
None of those idols can hold up to life's pandemics, okay? They just can't. But the Lord is a great God above all gods. Only God can handle the weight of our worship, and only God is worthy of our worship. So what does it say in verses 4 and 5? It says, In His hand are the depths of the earth. The heights of the mountains are his also. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. The psalmist says, because God made it, it's his. It's his. I remember when I was in junior high, I kind of went through this uh, phase where I was all into building like model cars and planes. You know, I had the, the kit and the glue and the, all the stuff, and I would put these little model cars together and everything, and sometimes, I mean, it, it took a long time, depending on how difficult the model was. And, and then I also went through a phase with a couple of my friends where we decided that we would take one of these model cars or planes and we would set it out in the street and we would stick some firecrackers in it. We would light those firecrackers and we would blow it up. That's what, that's what guys tend to We like to blow stuff up, right? And I had another friend who came along and said, you can't do that. And I said, yes, I can because it's mine. I made it. So if I want to blow up my model, I can blow up my model. <laughs> I was saying, it belongs to me, right? And so if the world is God's, it's his. He made it. He can do with it as he wills. And so if God made you and God made me, and certainly we see that clearly in Scripture, then we're his too. So if he can hold the depths of the earth, then certainly he can handle holding on to us, don't you think? See, we need revelation for worship. Now, we can look at creation, and, and God's Word is clear that creation itself reveals something to us about God's glory. We have to be careful that we not become uh, worshipers of the creation itself. We're not pantheists, okay? Uh, we, we're to worship the Creator and, and the world in which we live. I mean, just points to uh, His magnificence and His power and His creative genius and all of these things. That, that's what creation does. God is worthy. God is powerful. But we also need the revelation of the Word of God that shouts to us, God is powerful. God is holy. God is righteous and good and loving. And He wants to know you. He's personal. Word of God gives us the revelation we need. And so our hearts are going to worship. And if the only power that we are revealing to ourselves is the things of this world, the, the technology and all the stuff that we find ourselves immersed in today, then you can begin to look at those things instead of God. Get in the Word of God. I'm always baffled when people come to me and say, I just, I just feel distant from God. I feel like I need to know Him better. I want to have you know, a closer relationship with Him. And my first question is typically, well, tell me about your, your Bible reading. Tell me about your time in the Word. Eh, it's kind of hit and miss here and there. That, that, that's a lot of the reason that you're feeling distant from God, because He's revealed Himself to us through His Word. So if you want to know Him better, you got to get into His Word. He's revealed himself to us in the person of Jesus Christ. And so that's why we say as a church here, we want to be biblically based and Christ-centered because we believe that Jesus Christ, the Redeemer, is the central figure of Scripture. And even as we study the Old Testament, it points to the Lord Jesus Christ. So you need to challenge your heart today. 
Don't let it gaze at the things of this world. Be surrounded just by the turmoil and the chaos of this world and not show it continually who God is through his word. Our hearts will be happy to craft an idol if we do not show our hearts the true God in worship. Revelation. Number two, let's consider response. You can't have worship without response. Worship is responding to what God has revealed to us and responding appropriately. And so in much the same way that love must be expressed, worship must be expressed. It must be expressed. In the early days of mine and Christy's relationship, we of course had known each other for a number of years prior to, to me taking an interest in her, I guess. And so, but things had changed. She, I felt she'd grown up a lot, and I had a keen interest in getting to know her in a different way than I ever had before, and not just as one of my sister's friends. And so at the time, she worked in the college bookstore, and so I suddenly felt a need to go to the college bookstore a lot um, because I might need another pencil or an eraser or something, right? I mean, you just never know what you might need from the college bookstore. Actually, I was there because I wanted to see her. I wanted to talk to her. Wanted to get to know her. And as our relationship developed and it grew, there came a point in that relationship where I knew it was time for me to express something to her. And it was more than just, I think I might kind of like you. It was time for me to tell her, I love you. I love you. Now, do you think it would have been enough for her for me to just keep those feelings inside? No, at some point, you've got to express it. And the same, way is, uh, the same thing is true of worship. N- notice the call to specific expressions of worship here in the psalm. The truth is, we can do these things even and not really worship. So I want you to notice that the priority in the psalm here is the heart behind these expressions. Notice what they are. Joyful singing. You ever attended a worship service and mouthed the words while you were thinking about the cowboy game later that afternoon? Please tell me I'm not the only one who's ever done that, right? We can do that. You can be concerned about the things of this world. You can be concerned about your schedule for the week, the things that you're dealing with at work, and all those sorts of things. So you can go through the motions very easily. He says, thanksgiving, bring it with you. Songs of praise, bowing, kneeling. These are all expressions of worship, postures of worship. So a true right response in worship is joyful celebration and humble submission. God intends for us to enjoy him. John Piper's entire ministry has been built around the simple phrase that God is most, God is most glorified in us when we, are most, when we are most satisfied in Him. Joy, thanksgiving, praise. The singing you'll notice here is joyful singing. The noise is a joyful noise. To, to whom? To the rock of our salvation. To the rock of your salvation. What happens when someone is saved or rescued? You ever been present when someone was, was rescued or saved? When I was much younger, I went through uh, lifeguard training. Uh, but never had the opportunity, thankfully, to actually rescue someone, to, to save someone. There's, there's usually a, 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 an emotional explosion of some sort, we would call it. 
Doesn't matter if it's good news at the doctor. Maybe you were anticipating bad news, but you instead got good news. And so it's like, oh, it's like this sense of relief. There's just like this, there's some kind of an emotional expression. There's, there's a response to that. If your team is playing and, and, and you're down in the bottom of the ninth and someone steps up to the plate and they hit a two-run homer to win the game, it's a walk-off. It, it leads to what? It leads to celebration. When that happens, the, the people who are cheering for that team don't go, wow, glad we won that one. Let's go. No, but people jump up out of their seats. They, they cheer like crazy. There, there, there's a natural response that, it, that, that, it, that, that comes in a time like that. And those who have experienced personally God's rescue by faith in Jesus Christ have every reason to celebrate joyfully. Joyfully. And I realize we're not all the same. Some of us are more emotional than others. I'm not suggesting that there has to be a certain, a certain type of response in worship or that we all have to worship exactly the same or anything like that. There have been times in worship, quite frankly, where I've just been overwhelmed to the point of just crying before the Lord. I mean, we sang a line a moment ago that just it hit me in the face like a glass of cold water. It was like, it was my sin that held him there. <laughs> so what do we do when we've experienced the rescue of God? We respond. On October the 16th, 1987, there was an 18-month-old girl by the name of Jessica McClure. Some of you remember that name, and you will recall the event that I'm referencing. She was rescued after being trapped for 58 hours in an abandoned well in Midland, Texas. The drama unfolded actually on the morning of October the 14th of 1987 when little baby Jessica, as she became known, fell through the eight-inch wide opening of an abandoned well while playing with other children in the backyard of her aunt's home daycare center. After dropping about 22 feet into the well, the little girl became stuck. And over the next, imagine this, moms, especially, two and a half days, two and a half days, crews of rescue workers and mining experts and local volunteers labored around the clock to drill a shaft parallel to the one in which little baby Jessica was trapped. And then they tunneled horizontally through dense rock to connect the two shafts. And when baby Jessica was finally rescued, with the world watching, some of you remember that? You remember the, they would cut in and they would show what, what was happening in Midland and everybody was just engaged in this thing. People were talking about it even on the street. This is pre-internet days and all that, of course. So people were talking about it. You'd be in a place and they'd show an update and everybody's wondering, did that little girl get rescued? Yeah, that little girl get rescued. When she was finally rescued, after those 58 grueling hours, there was a worldwide celebration People cheering for the rescue of a little girl that they didn't even know. Because that, that, that's a normal, very natural response to rescue, to someone being saved. So true worship is about responding to what God, what he has revealed to us about who he is and what he has revealed to us through his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. You're thankful for simply who God is and what he's done. So you don't sing out of duty. No. You sing because of joy, because your heart loves God and believes God and responds to God. You know that he's your great treasure. 
And so the psalmist here writes, Oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord, our maker. The point here really is that the physical posture symbolizes a heart posture of humility and submission. Let's be clear, the things of this world offer false joy. And dead religion offers false humility. So only engaging in a relationship of true worship of the true God brings true humility and true joy. And only seeing God for who he is brings about the response of true joy and humble submission as your heart is transformed by what he has done for you in Jesus Christ. The psalmist here is driving at the heart. And that's why he gives us reasons. You want performance only? You can be motivated by a lot of things. Everybody's doing it. We we see in the Old Testament, there are times when people were forced to worship a, a statue or a god, right? Okay, bow down or else. Everybody's doing this. In some places, people are manipulated emotionally to, to a particular form of worship, maybe. But he says here, look at how great God is. Look, he's your God. He's your shepherd. God wants more than the performance of worship. God wants a heart that worships. Humility and joy meet in worship of Almighty God. I want you to notice that the text takes a little bit of a turn here in verses 7 and 8. This is the tension that I think we've all experienced This is where we find out if we are responding properly, if we're just going through the motions or we are truly worshiping with our hearts because worship flows from the response of heart. Joy and humility flow from a believing heart. Only true worshipers will find rest. You can only truly worship if you have rest. So those that are true worshipers respond to God's revelation rightly and then they find rest ultimately. And that leads us to the third third aspect of worship that I want us to see today, and that's rest. At the end of this psalm, the word rest, it's used as as a warning and an implied promise. It's something that a generation of Israelites missed out on. The rest that God did not allow them uh, to, to experience was the promised land. Ultimately, the rest of the promised land points to a deeper rest. It's ultimately complete rest in God, in his presence forever. And so the psalmist here, he writes, Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. And then he pulls from a couple of examples. God's people have a responsibility to listen and to, by faith, obey God in right response. So what's the context here? Well, the psalmist, you'll notice here, he references both Meribah and Massah. Exodus chapter 17, God had delivered Israel out of Egyptian bondage. Moses was leading them toward the promised land. As they got away from from Egypt, they had a water crisis. So they start what? They start complaining. That's kind of what the Israelites did, right? You study their journeys through the wilderness, you'll find this cycle of grumbling and complaining. I think the King James Version often translates it murmuring. You English experts know that that's an onomatopoeia. That's a word that sounds like what it means, right? Murmuring. I just, 
I, I can't even fathom how Moses and Aaron, how they dealt with this. Just this constant cycle of complaining and griping. Now, God had done a series of miracles to deliver his people. But rather than say, you know what? We're in the midst of this little water crisis here. I'm pretty sure God's got this. I mean, after all, he had brought them through the Red Sea, right? God can handle water. God does water, right? Instead, they were faithless. And then later, Canaan, they came to Canaan and God had promised them the land. And with the exception of two guys named Joshua and Caleb, spies came back, basically said that the inhabitants of the land were too big, too strong, we'll get destroyed. People chose to believe the faithless report of the ten spies rather than trust God's promise to take God at his word. And what were the consequences? They did not enter his rest. They didn't enter his rest. That generation died off before Israel took possession of the promised land. Moses himself didn't get to enter the promised land. When things got difficult in their hearts, they bailed on God and died in the wilderness. Worship is about so much more than rituals. It's about the heart. Singing lips don't necessarily mean that there's a changed heart. It all comes down to the heart of worship. For those to whom the psalmist is writing here, the warning is ultimately don't miss out on the eternal rest that God offers through salvation, knowing and enjoying God's presence forever. You see, the simple truth is this. You can appear to be a part of the community that worships God, but not actually be a part of the community that worships God. You can be one who goes through the motions without ever having a heart that believes God. In the New Testament, in Hebrews chapters 3 and 4, this, this same passage is actually used to encourage people to find rest in Christ and to continue in faith and to persevere in faith and to rest in Christ in all situations. In Hebrews 4.1 it says, Therefore, while the promise of entering his rest still stands... Let us fear, lest any of you should seem to have failed to reach it. In that same chapter, verses 10 and 11, it says, For whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works as God did from his. Let us therefore strive to enter that rest, so that no one may fall by the same sort of disobedience. So in the New Testament, we understand God's rest this way. It is something that we enter into when we trust Christ. When we turn from our sin to faith in Jesus Christ. Matthew chapter 11, verses 28 through 30, it says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. How many times have you applied that verse to your physical body being just worn out, right? Whew, I need a Jesus nap, right? I mean, every Sunday after church, I'm, I'm thinking there's a nap coming in my future real soon, right? What is it going to say there? Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I'm gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for what? Your body? You're worn out, aching? No, it says you will find rest for your souls. For your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus, as our Redeemer, is the great rest giver. 
And if you are spiritually worn out this morning as you've come to this place of worship because all week long you're out there trying to somehow, some way, in your best efforts, earn God's favor, you need to find rest in Jesus. He's the great rest giver. And all believers will one day experience the final rest of eternity with God. There's rest today and rest to come. I conducted a funeral service yesterday uh, afternoon down in Dallas for Betty Veal. Some of you uh, remember Vet- Betty, you were a part of our church fellowship for a time here. I'm so grateful that I could stand there having known Betty and known her testimony and all those things, and I could say she's experiencing the rest, the ultimate rest that we find in Scripture. See, only true worshipers will have that ultimate rest. And at the same time, only those who have rested in Jesus Christ will truly worship God now. Only the gospel can produce a true worshiper. And only true worshipers have experienced gospel rest. Gospel rest. I want to conclude with this quote from Tim Keller. It says this, Unless you find rest in Christ, worship would be just another work to you. Another way to try to earn God's favor. See, real worship begins when Christ is revealed to us and we respond to him in faith and find rest in him. And then from that rest, we look forward to the day of ultimate rest in God's presence. Rest in Christ. Trust in him. For your salvation, obviously. Trust his work, not yours. It's not by works of righteousness, Scripture says, which we have done. But according to his mercy, he saved us. Trust him with all things. Trust him with your future. Trust him with your health, your life. And that will continually create in you a heart that longs to worship. Not just on Sunday morning. But on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and every day of the week. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word today. We thank you that you are not just some distant deity who has no desire to first reveal yourself to us, who has no desire to be in relationship with your people. God, I thank you that we can know clearly from your word that you are powerful and you are personal. Lord, as we consider the various ways in which you reveal yourself to us through your word, through your beautiful creation, through the very image of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would help us to respond with hearts of worship. We would ultimately bring honor and glory to you. So may we see all of these other things that we do and give ourselves to throughout a busy week as ways we can worship you, whether it's in our work, our relationships, our family life, The simple act of eating. It's all part of worship. Responding 
for that one here today who is just spiritually depleted, exhausted, because for so long they've been trying to earn your favor, be good enough, in hopes that they will someday somehow be found in a right relationship with you. I pray that they would find the rest that they long for in Jesus Christ. our Redeemer, the great rest giver. Lord, we love you, we thank you and praise you. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this message from First Baptist Church of Van Alstine. For more information about our church, visit www.fbcva.com.